New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Mindfulness is both profound and potent. Our guest today suggests that it is not about holding the busy world at bay. It's to cultivate a more alive, responsive, effective, and warm-hearted way of being within the world as it already exists and within a life you already live. Today we'll be exploring how to find composure right in the midst of the storm, and ways to integrate mindfulness into our daily life with our guest, Mark Lesser. Mark Lesser is a Zen teacher who leads trainings and talks worldwide. He has led mindfulness and emotional intelligence programs at many of the world's leading businesses and organizations, including Google, Genetech, and Kaiser. He's currently CEO of ZBA Associates, a company providing mindfulness-based leadership trainings and creating community by supporting ongoing groups. Previously, he served as CEO and co-founder of Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, whose core programs he helped develop within Google. Mark was a resident of the San Francisco Zen Center for 10 years and former director of Tazahara Zen Mountain Center. He's the author of Less, Accomplishing More by Doing Less, Know Yourself, Forget Yourself, and Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader, Lessons from Google and a Zen Monastery Kitchen. Join us for the next hour as we explore how mindfulness practice can help us meet the challenges of life more skillfully, whether it's at work, at home, or out in the world in general, with our guest, Mark Lesser. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Mark, welcome. Thank you, Justine. I'd love to just talk. I know that you lived at the Zen Center for, for a while, so you were practicing Zen meditation. And then you went to Tazahara, this uh, retreat center, a Zen mm-hmm. retreat center, mm-hmm. and somehow <laughs> ended up as chief cook and bottle washer <laughs> in the kitchen and heading up a whole team. And you learned about leadership, and, and I mean, 
you're really in the fire in the kitchen. <laughs> I mean, it's getting off the cushion now. You're really in it. And use all the principles you've learned mm-hmm. sitting on your cushion. I'd love for you to tell that story. Yeah. No, it was, uh, it was amazing. I was 24 years old my first summer at uh, Tassajara, and I, my job was as dishwasher. Uh, and at that time, uh, the dishwashing was done in the kitchen, all by hand. Uh, this was in the summertime when there were 70 or 80 overnight guests every night. So it was, uh, that was my first experience of the kitchen. But what, even then, I was so, in fact, my, my very first experience of, I arrived at Tassajara, went to the courtyard, which is right next to the kitchen, and these two, these two men kind of walked out the door of the kitchen onto this platform, and they were laughing, just laughing and playing. And, and it turned, that was actually, at the time, uh, the head cook and the assistant cook at that time, who I didn't know then, who've now, they've become some close friends. But there's something about uh, the amount of laughter and love and connection that I felt from day one, you know, as I entered Tassajara. And then uh, I ended up working in the kitchen the following 90-day practice period. I was on the crew chopping vegetables. And, um, and somehow I got asked uh, to be the baker during the summer. I was a Tassajara bread baker. And a, a couple years later, I found myself working on the crew. And I got asked to be the assistant uh, to the head cook which is a great job. It's kind of like the operations manager. You're sort of directing all of the traffic, keeping things, everything running, training people. Just a great, a great role. And then the following year, I got asked to be uh, the head cook, which, which is more kind of a leadership position, management, ordering food, budgets. But, but all of that, just um, something about a group of people, like sometimes there'd be, you know, maybe 15 people working side by side with integrating, right? Chopping vegetables, sometimes for two days ahead, sometimes a group of people at, you know, on the fire, cooking and serving up those meals, baking, all, all interwoven. Sometimes things go wrong. You know, the potatoes aren't cooked and you're supposed to be serving up the meal or the vegetable that you thought was the dinner vegetable isn't in the walk-in. And it was hot, these Tassajara days, with no, no air conditioning in the kitchen. So it was an, as intense, I think, as any kind of commercial kitchen. High expectations about Tassajara's known in the summer. Gourmet, vegetarian meals. Now, and there's so many pieces to it. There's also, I think, a very well thought through developed training about how things were done uh, from the knives that you would never see a knife in the sink. Like even today in my house, sometimes guests will come over and they'll take a knife and put it in, like, it almost hurts my body to see a knife in the, like, no, knives do not go in the sink. <laughs> you clean that knife you dry that knife 
and it goes in a very particular place. I know where that knife is, and I'm never going to be surprised to reach in and cut my hands. And so, yeah. I mean, but but also like how the garlic is chopped and how the you know how you do things and how things are cooked. So how did you all work together then in in that high stress yeah. situation? Well, I think there was this interesting combination of the training about how to do things combined with that this was primarily about practice. It was the the primary aim was was not about producing great food. It was about producing great people. And like this was training in knowing yourself and in going beyond yourself. Training in collaboration and in serving something bigger than you, which meant bumping up against your own small ideas and sometimes bumping up against what do you do when you get angry when you go over and someone's in your space, what are, hey, I'm baking bread in this space. Yes, and what do, you, what, what do you mean you're making chocolate cake in this space? <laughs> this is, and that over and over again, you're summoned to bring up that sense of kindness over and over, because right in the midst. There, there, there was a, a culture there. That's right. That, that's right. Of of loving kindness, and you, that's you, what what like the overall. You you cut right through, you know, to the you know the punchline is that, you know, in in my book, the the first line in my book is, culture eats strategy for breakfast, <laughs> and and which is great that we're talking about the kitchen and food, so it all it all kind of fits together, but yes, there was a very kind of basic assumption that. You were there to practice. You were there to practice kindness, curiosity. You were there to bump up against the contradiction of you're a human being and you have strong emotions and it's hot and you're tired and, and like work faster, you know, like work, like, like it's not always, it's not, you know, people think, oh, mindfulness. No, well, yeah, no, like cut those freaking carrots. I need you to I I need you to cut them faster. And like can you work, you know, like I can show you how to do them faster. I can show you how to focus. Oh, this is the best you're doing. Great. We need more people, right? I need I need another person right now cuz I need those carrots now. Right. Right. <laughs> so working with what is. Right, that's right. What is. And right. uh, your book, Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader, you, you have these seven practices, mm-hmm. these seven principles, so to speak, mm-hmm. of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And it came from an odd source, mm-hmm. I felt. I'm, yeah, this was, uh, you know, I, I found myself, um, you know, what, 20 years later than when I was in this or more from the Tassara kitchen teaching mindfulness inside of Google. And I felt very, you know, very consciously and maybe not so consciously that like the ongoing question was how do we bring that culture that I felt like I got to be part of and that it was in my body in some way and that Google wanted it. And that Google, maybe they didn't even know that they wanted it. They, were, they, they wanted mindfulness, 
and uh, with a kind of depth and a kind of precision that was there in Google, which actually was a big stretch for me to like, uh, it was a lot of work about how does, how do these things translate into a corporate environment and, a, and an engineering environment, a, a high powered work environment. But again, as you were saying, it was about tapping into the culture and tapping into the basic, I think, needs and challenges that we all humans have, whether you're a Google engineer or a Tassahara bread baker. I call it the dirty little secret of the business world. It's all human, it's all human beings. So bringing this program, mindfulness programs into Google, then looking at uh, how to scale it, how to train, how do you train Google engineers to be mindfulness teachers? And, and the story that you're referring to is I brought in a good friend of mine, a man named Norman Fisher, who's one of the world's leading Zen teachers and who, who was part of the early days of, of working with me in, inside of Google. And we were training a group and, and um, during this, this one day training, I looked at the agenda for this day and it said, Norman gives talk on mindfulness. And I had a feeling no one had really communicated it to Norman. So I, I very delicately pointed to the agenda, showed it to Norman. He very nonchalantly made some notes and taught these seven practices. I, I, I want you to flesh that out for us in just a bit, but I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Mark Lesser. He's the author of Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader, Lessons from Google and a Zen Monastery Kitchen. And if you want to know more about the work of Mark, you can go to his website, marklesser.net, and he spells his name M A R C. L-E-S-S-E-R, marklesser.net. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Mark Lesser, and we're talking about mindfulness, mindfulness in the marketplace, so to speak. And Mark, you were just sharing the story of being with Norman Fisher, and, and suddenly he's going to have to speak, and you knew that he hadn't really been informed that he was going to speak. And so what happened at that point? Yeah, he, uh, Norman got out a piece of paper and a pen, made a few notes, and launched into giving a talk to these uh, about a dozen, mostly Google engineers, on 
what are the core values, the core practices that you need to know or need to work to embody in order to be a mindfulness teacher. And he launches into these seven practices. Love the work. Do the work. Don't be an expert. Connect to your pain. Connect to the pain of others. Depend on others. And keep making it simpler. And I was totally entranced and bowled over when, when, and then he spoke for a few minutes about each one. I wrote them down. I actually kind of made a chart of them and put them on everyone's desk in the company. There were about 20 people at the time with a note saying, these express the values for how the kind of culture that I want us to work together. And then I realized that they even go beyond that. They were like, this is how I want to live my life. And I began writing and I began, you know, I was out there a fair amount at that time as the CEO of the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute doing talks. And I found myself doing talks about these seven practices. And then little by little, it started to emerge as, oh, I think this is a book. <laughs> and, and then I started to feel funny, like I needed to get Norman's permission. And this was now a couple of years had gone by. And I called Norman and said, Norman, I, this might be a difficult conversation. I don't know, but I'm, I'm calling to tell you I'm writing about these seven practices that you, that you spoke about at Google, and I'd like to write a book about it, and I need your okay. And Norman, of course, says, what seven practices? <laughs> I, have, yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about. I read Norman the seven practices. He said, those are really good. You should write a book about those, and good luck, and send me a copy. So... So it was very, he really did. That really was off the cuff, Norman talking about those. And it's also funny, uh, my world. I I actually gave a talk yesterday at Google about these. And I used to spend a lot of time teaching at Google, not, not a lot in recent years, some. And then I'm teaching tomorrow with Norman at Green Gulch. And, um, and it was funny, he has a new book out. And I said, Norman, let's have the theme be about your book. No, let's, Mark, let's have it be about your book. So, <laughs> oh, so we're kind of combining. Our... Oh, sweet. Oh, sweet. Mindfulness. Uh, we're in a kind of time, an era of, I'm going to call it Mac mindfulness. <laughs> I mean, that yeah. that a lot of people are teaching mindfulness. And and I'm sure some of it is very valuable, but a lot of it kind of is going for, let's say, self-improvement, mm -hmm. or they have a certain goal in mind. I think that you're talking about something uh, slightly different or broader or deeper. What can you say? You know, I, maybe it's, I can't tell if it's my own strength or weakness, but um, I have more of a, like, I think it's, I think for the most part, it's Almost all of it, I think, is good and beneficial. Some of it may be more surfacey or more goal-oriented, goal as you said. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, I think it's getting people in the door, getting people to think about things that they might not have thought about. This realm of mindfulness is incredibly deep and broad and vast. The Zen tradition is just one piece of it, and the Zen tradition is vast and I've been studying Zen for 40 years now. And I, I really do feel like I'm just scratching the, the surface. So there is, 
there is this incredible depth and breadth to this thing that we call mindfulness practice. But I don't want people to feel like, therefore, it's unapproachable. My, my goal with the work that I do is to make these things as accessible. So I think it's beautiful to bring these into the corporate world. Now, there's many motivations, you know, from the unwholesome, you know, to, oh, these are going to improve corporate profits. Well, that's not why I'm there. That might get me in the door. I'm okay. I'm okay coming in the door. And I feel like I can then present these trainings in a, in a very wide way so that some people who, are, who just, who just want to reduce stress more, these practices can help. Uh, want to be a better leader, want to be more flexible, want to be able to go home and turn it off so you can be with your family. Great. I, I, think, I think these things can help. Want to work on, you know, going beyond self and, and tapping into something that's much wider and deeper and want to embody a sense of what freedom is. Okay, let's work on that level too. That that level really excites me. And that level is is a lifetime level. Definitely, I mean, it's not like okay, I'm going to arrive someday. It, it just it just keeps expanding or deepening, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, that's the beauty of all of these practices, but very uh, specifically, right? Practice number three. You know, don't be an expert. Right. That is so important. I, when I don't be an expert, now how did that come up with mindfulness practice? It was wonderful. Yeah, yeah well, again, I think um, from the perspective of if you're, if you're training to be a teacher of mindfulness, um, realize you're, you're not going to be an expert. You're not going to be, because, you know, in some way, mindfulness and these practices is... Like, the question is the practice of being fully human. How can we be fully human? How can we show up in relationship? How do we show up when the potatoes are not cooked in the kitchen or the, or, or the code that you just wrote sucks and, yeah. and it's causing all kinds of things to, to fall apart? Or how do you show up when... You're in conflict, you know, whether it's at work or at home, like this human, how do, you, how do you deal with success? How do you deal with failure? How do you deal with change and unknown? This, this amazing thing of time and consciousness. Well, that's an important point, I think, that you just touched on. Because to be human is to fail. And mm-hmm. I know that your work in improv theater has helped you a bit to, to work to understand about failure. And, and there's something that, that is taught in some improv classes is to really take on failure and to learn what they call the circus bow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The circus bow. Mm-hmm. So when you fail, you do a great big bow when the woman falls off the horse and she's not supposed to she turns to the audience and she just takes a big yeah. bow yeah. because that's going to come up for us and we yeah. think we're going to have to be an expert right. all the time right. especially when we're in leadership yeah that's i mean that that right that don't that's part of this practice of don't be an expert and i 
Uh, someone reminded me that I used to do that pretty regularly, the circus bow at Google. Uh, I used to get people to stand up and throw their arms up in the air and say, I failed, I failed. And, and then it becomes like you start, to you start to notice that, of course, we don't like failure, but even little things like, you know, you accidentally spill your coffee. Well, instead of like cursing and sputter, like it's like, I fit, like, yeah, I've, like yeah. it's, it's shifting relationship, you know, and um, you could also say, you could do the same thing about change and I changed, like, wow, I look in the mirror and I'm, I'm not the same person. I, I, how did how did that how did that happen? Like Where did this, those wrinkles go? Where did yeah, that gray hair come from? Yeah, or lack of hair? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm so you know I was a younger brother. I'm so sort of programmed. I, I was always the youngest person in the room, and I, I was in Google yesterday and looked around and said, hmm, I might be. I might be the oldest person in this room. How, <laughs> yes. did, that How did that happen? But happen? but I'm not worried. They're all they're all going to get to you know if they're lucky they're going to get to experience aging. One of one of the uh, topics that you or capacities we'll call it one of the capacities that you talk about in the practices of being mindful is generative listening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how important that is mm -hmm. for us, and I, I'm, I'm not sure which, which, uh, yeah. uh, one it, it goes to, which of the seven practices well, that, it goes with. Yeah. Well, if that's going to take a little bit of unpacking, um, in some way, uh, and and I think what I've been realizing is the practice of listening, in a way, holds all the practices, mm. and and in some way is probably. Um, built in, integrated, and, and primary. Again, it's, you know, we humans, it's so easy, right? We hear the word listening, and probably most people say, oh, come on, What's, tell me something I don't already know. But I find listening is much more complex and challenging and profound than you might think. Like, to, you know, it's a little bit like one of the examples I like to give is, you know, if you if you see if you see a waterfall in a creek, our minds immediately identify it as oh that's a waterfall, like well, there's no such thing, oh uh, there's it's just it's this thing it's this change in in dimension and shape in the in the water, and and if you just curious about well what is that what if if there wasn't this, as soon as we name it, suddenly we become an expert. We know what that waterfall is. Listening's like that too, even talking about listening or listening to another person. Oh, I already know what that other person's going to say. They already, I know, I've got like, so listening means, and this don't be an expert and listening is actually having the courage to not know, to not know what you're going to say, to not know what I'm going to say. This is actually why I took improv classes, because I was terrified. I, I was starting to be asked to do talks, and the idea of being in front of people without a script, I used to make multiple scripts and put them in all my pockets just in case I lost one. And so it was so great to, to have to fail and have to be in a place where I had to listen in a different way. So 
I think it's I think it's probably in the chapter on do the work, but I have to say I'm not completely sure. Where I, t- I describe four levels of listening, not listening, which is the most popular, uh, listening for content, listening for feelings, and then this other this fourth level, which generative listening, or sometimes I call it intuitive listening, listening beyond the words and feelings. Thank you. I'm here with Mark Lesser. He's the author of Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader, Lessons from Google and a Zen Monastery Kitchen. If you want to know more about his work, go to his website, marklesser.net. And he spells his name M-A-R-C-L-E-S-S-E-R, marklesser.net. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Mark Lesser, the author of Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader. And we're talking about mindfulness. And one of the things that that I I loved, you related mindfulness a bit with love of self and love of others. You kind of used the word love, mindfulness and love. You kind of coupled those together. And you talk about four qualities of love. And that popped out at me, Mark, for a bit that I I hadn't heard of mindfulness being related to love. Yeah. yeah it, it's interesting that I remember someone uh, talking about like why, when you look at um, especially Buddhist texts, Zen texts, Buddhist texts, that you don't see you don't see the word compassion or the word love used very much. And I think the reason for that is it's assumed. Hmm. It's in the culture. It's in the water. It's like, it's just, everyone just knows you don't have to talk about love or compassion because that's what these practices are fundamentally about. Then loving kindness comes up, and the word joy comes up. And I thought that that was particularly interesting because when you're talking about joy, you describe it as being okay no matter what the conditions are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and it's sometimes in, in Buddhist philosophy that, that practice is sometimes called sympathetic joy, right? It's feeling happy because of the joy of others. Right, so things like things like compassion and loving kindness and joy, and equanimity, these are kind of core teachings around four qualities, four qualities of love. One of my favorite um, books. I've, I, this has been a really good year, I feel like, for um, books. Uh, one that really grabbed me was. Um, Michael Pollan's, uh, <laughs> it's funny, the, the, the title of his book, um, How to Change Your Mind. 
mm-hmm. How to Change Your Mind, a book basically about hallucinogenics. But the experiences over and over again that people taking just this tiny little bit of mushroom is everything else drops. When everything else drops away, what's left is love. And it turns out that it's the same part of the brain impacted by meditation and mindfulness practice. It's essentially, the practice of meditation and mindfulness is essentially to make connections in the brain that are normally compartmentalized. And when you open up those parts of the brain, those parts of the mind, that experience, if you, anybody who does like a long-term meditation retreat will find, almost without exception, what's there is when you strip things away, when you strip away the things that are not so important, is a feeling, a, an embodied feeling of love, of love beyond description. Love and appreciation and joy seem to just be there at the base of being a human being. At one point, I called my publisher and said, I want to change the title of my book to How to Change Your Mind Without Drugs. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. um, in a way, and even I, I think it's no accident, even that when Norman talked about it and that of these seven practices, the first practice is love the work. And, mm. and the work, in a way, is the practice of love. It's not, the, it's not the work that, it's not the job that you're doing. It's to love the work of finding out what's most important to being a human being. And the answer is love. The answer is what's most important is to, is to be in love with yourself, to be in love with the practice of discovering what it is to be human which means getting to know all of these difficult things, you know. That takes me to uh, a wonderful story, Buddhist story, that you put in the book about the 84 problems <laughs> mm-hmm. and really taps into mm-hmm. what you're talking about, mm-hmm. being in love with, with life, that open-heartedness and the way that we function and we problems come up and we you know, that that distract us and then we get really involved with them and they are there. So talk about the 84 practices that the Buddha talks about. Yeah, well, this is in the uh, kind of opening of the seventh practice, uh, Keep Making It Simpler. And it's a story about a farmer that comes to the historical Buddha and says, can you help me? I've got problems. My crops aren't growing because the weather isn't cooperating. My wife is being difficult. Um, you know, we're just having a lot of conflict. And my children, as they're growing up, they're not respecting me. And so you're the wise, you know, Buddha. Can you help me? And the Buddha says, looks at the farmer and says, um, no, I can't help you with your problems. He says, in fact, every human being has 83 problems. And as soon as you solve one, another one pops up to take its place. But then the Buddha says, but I can probably help you with the 84th problem. And the farmer says, what's that? And and the Buddha says, the 84th problem is not wanting to have any problems. (laughs) And, And I think the teaching there is, of course, none of us want problems, but it's about shifting our relationship with them. 
what would it be like? Again, it's, a, it's, it's funny how all these practices are kind of interwoven. It reminds me a lot of don't be an expert. Because if you're not an expert, you can appreciate your problems. If you want to make things simpler, is don't be pushing problems away. Um, even, I, I, I don't know, I just, I just thought of um, early on when I was CEO of my, my last organization, uh, we were tr we were experimenting with a lot of different new new projects and programs, and and one of my employees came up and said, you know, I feel like I'm juggling a lot of balls. I'm just juggling a lot of balls, and and it's really getting me stressed. And I, and I looked at him and said, let's change the metaphor. How about if instead of juggling a lot of balls, you're planting a lot of seeds. Mm. And immediately, it's this, you know, immediately he could relax and, and, and things became simpler. Seed planting is so much simpler and it's more like, it's more like being a farmer instead of a circus juggler. Mm. Uh, so it's interesting, just somehow shifting meta, so it's like shifting our relationship with our problems can be a way of find, of embodying a little bit more calmness and equanimity. My, and this was, I think, part of the culture in the Tassajara kitchen was bring it on. Unknown, things going wrong, people not, like, like it's, it's just, that's just the way of the world here. And I can, I can, I can handle it. And on another level, I think it's like, my heart can handle it. My heart and my way of being are wide enough that I, 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 I can handle it. And, and if I need help, I can ask for help. If, I, if it's too much, I can ask for help. I can ask for support. Now, there is a big one. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're taught to be such individuals and stand, <laughs> and we're, it's quite something that's really valued in our society. Practice number six, depend <laughs> on others. <laughs> okay, let, yeah, let's talk about that, because that's a big deal for us, and in, in especially in Western mm -hmm. society. Mm -hmm. Well, again, all of these are a bit paradoxical, right? That It's funny, somewhere in, in, in different of my writings, I've written, you know, if it's not paradoxical, it's not true. And, and I really tried to find who I got that from. And unfortunately, if you Google that quote, you know what will come up? Mark Lesser. Oh, my God. Totally not helpful. <laughs> I, I did not, I did not for, come up yeah. with that. I got it yeah. from someone. But, yeah. but of course, we should be self-sufficient. Of course, we should learn to stand on our own two feet. There's a... It's an important quality. And we have to depend on others. We just do. You know, we depend on others for clean air, you know, for the quality of our water, for the quality of our health care, for our life. For, I mean, but then when it comes to in the business world, this is one of the huge shifts happening is that in fact, there is a recent Harvard study that said the word, the word in work these days is collaboration. That, that everything, almost everything is done, if not in teams of two, in larger teams. And collaboration, it's like, 
I find it so exciting to work, to go into companies, not only like Google, but any, any company, even small companies are now working globally and working across time zones and um, that the need to collaborate and the need to collaborate at all kinds of levels from, you know, from program development to problem solving to it's, it's all about people depending on each other. And, and depending on each other requires m mindfulness and emotional intelligence. It requires this different, this kind of listening at, listening at many levels, responding instead of reacting. And it also, I think, requires when we're working with others to really know the strengths and the right. weaknesses of each other. That's you right. know that that we don't start jumping on someone. You 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 said something earlier uh, about a person who was chopping carrots, mm -hmm. and you needed them chopped really fast. Mm -hmm. That person was not capable of chopping them fast. Mm -hmm. And so you said, "Oh, we need a second person in here," rather than you know beating that person up for right. not doing what they could not that's, do. That's right. That's right. I, I remember being in the kitchen and a group of people would be together, you know, pr prepping and, and noticing that um, they, were, they were having a good time talking to each other. And I think they like, like, oh, maybe I haven't conveyed clearly enough. I'm depending on them and that, I, that, that these things need to get done. And I realized that they want to connect with each other, um, but not now. And I need to, so it's interesting, I, I call it the, uh, I need this done now and I still love you, but stop, stop the chatting and get to work. Yeah. And there'll be time, there'll be time, I, I, I can promise you there'll be time for you to connect with each so other. So that's like you're, you're talking <laughs> about mindfulness and our learning better and better to be skillful yeah. with one another yeah. and to, to keep the, the big picture in mind. Yeah. We're just learning how to be more skillful. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Mark Lesser, and he has been a Zen teacher and a practicer of Zen for many years, and he's been working in businesses and helping uh, businesses work better together, helping their culture, helping, helping them to look at how they can be more effective in in their working together. And he's the author of Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Mark Lesser, and he is the author of Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader. And uh, Mark, I'd love to ask you to read a couple of paragraphs from the book because they really popped out at me as, as being significant. So many things did, but uh, if you could read these two paragraphs and then we'll talk about them. Sure, I'd be happy to. And these are from the chapter, Keep Making It Simpler. Acceptance, embracing the fact of impermanence and the certainty of change is a powerful tool for cultivating simplicity. Much of our doing is extra and moves us in the direction of complexity. The key is to integrate doing and non-doing, effort and effortlessness. This isn't some magic trick or ancient mysterious spiritual practice. When you're speaking or writing, just speak or write without doing anything extra. This same attitude of just doing what you are doing without comparing or judging or trying to get to the next activity can be cultivated in leading, in listening, in driving, in working alone or with others, in relationships as well as in your daily activities. The intention of the seventh practice is to see or recognize the most important thing in any given moment even in the midst of our busy lives. We can't avoid challenges or problems or grief or death, but when we feel confused and overwhelmed, we can remember, keep making it simpler and simpler still. Each moment and each day, keep making life less complicated so we are more focused, spacious, and present. So we prioritize the most important action to take. That's, wow. that's pretty good. That's pretty good, Mark. <laughs> that's pretty good. So constantly looking at what is the most important thing yeah. right now in this moment. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think embedded in there, and this is, this is very subtle and profound teaching, I think, in, in mindfulness. And it's, it's a kind of radical responsibility for yourself. We humans me included, you know. Um, actually, I loved, as I was reading that, I, I, I thought to myself, yeah, I should pay attention to this. This is, <laughs> this is you know, this is good. This, I wrote this book for me, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but this radical responsibility and noticing how we, it's easy to blame others for our situation, whether it's our parents, our culture, our society, it can't be me, right? If, if things aren't going well, if I'm not succeeding or happy, or it's like, well, you know, yes, things are, there's an interdependency and there's a depend on others, but there's this radical sense of taking responsibility for my own state of mind, my own sense of well-being, and, and responsibility for my part in, in relationships that I feel is embedded in that it's scary and it's freeing. In fact, there's a, there's a chapter, there's a collection by, uh, uh, so I, think of, I think of it as famous, it's famous in a small slice of this world, uh, a book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by the founder, by Shinri Suzuki, the founder of the Zen Center. Oh, everybody should have a copy of that it's, book. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a wonderful book. Classic. There's a chapter in there 
that the purpose of practice is to become the boss of everything. Mm. And he doesn't mean, you know, it's not about bossing people around. It's more like radical responsibility that, that we practice. There's a part of practice. Is, it, is that like the boss, like the buck stops here sort of, sort of situation that, okay, you can't blame anybody else. That's right. That's right. Like it's about noticing how we, when we're hurt or something goes wrong, we, our minds almost magnificently, instantly go to blame. Who to blame? Oh, of course. Can't be me. Yeah. But it's like, no, it's like noticing that and again and again taking on, I'm responsible for this state of mind. I'm responsible for my reactions and responses showing up. It's a kind of, rat, it's again, I like this, this kind of sense of owning, owning my breath, owning my body, owning this state of mind. It's not beating myself up. It's, it's actually, it's a kind of practice of compassion and curiosity and kindness, not blaming others, not blaming myself, being responsible. This reminds me or takes me, and maybe you can remember this that, that you wrote about in the book about, and you were at a workshop that uh, uh, Robert Gasp was mm. leading, and he came up with this question uh, do you recall that uh, he came up with a question about what are the choices? What's uh, what's really needed? What's what's okay. ne what's ne what what what's needed? And and he, this was a a leadership workshop I did with Robert years ago, in which he you know got out a piece of paper and said, you know, what's essential? What what really is essential? Like money? Well, no. You know, you could live. You could you could somehow you'd survive without money. You might. It might be really hard. You know, it's just things, you know, just getting, kind of honing into, like, what really is I think essential. it came down to food, water, and air. Yeah. We, those things we absolutely are essential. Yeah. yeah. But the, but everything else, like, yeah. almost everything on that list yeah. kind of came up with, yeah. Yeah. we have a choice. Mm -hmm. And that was... Yeah. But I think then you can take that, you can take that, I think, and... Like if you're someone who is um, running a company, you can, for the context of, well, what, you know, what are the essential pieces here? And it might be, you know, it might be how I take care of my customers. It might be the particular quality of the products, the particular quality of the, these. So it's interesting to take that in different contexts, but to keep coming back to that question, that question is, what is essential? What is most important right now in this moment in my relationship, in my business? You know, um, if I'm having a conversation with my spouse or child or parent, like getting, right. getting, dropping down to cut, cutting away, cutting away all the things. It's a great, a great question is what's extra here? What am I doing that's extra? Right. I, I'm thinking of, of a moment that you talk about just briefly in the book and you tell on yourself. And that's when, when your mom moved from Florida mm -hmm. to the West Coast to be with you in her dying. I mm -hmm. mean, she was very, very ill yeah. and it had a stroke. And 
it was a moment when you were picking her up f- mm-hmm. to take her to the doctor, mm-hmm. and you were very busy in right. your life, and she was very slow. At, she wasn't ready. Yeah. And that was kind of one of those moments, a choiceful moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And can you describe that? Yeah, this was, I was CEO of a publishing company at the time, and and my mother was in my house. Um, she had just moved into my house, and and we had agreed you know, I was going to come home and take her to the doctor, and I was in a rush. Mom, I need you to be ready. And I came home on my lunch hour, and, and my mother's in her pajamas. And I, I noticed my own anger and disappointment. We had this agreement. And then I'm, um, I'm saying that she needs to get dressed, and I'm noticing that she couldn't get dressed by herself. And that my my ideas, my needs were totally unuseful and unnecessary. You know, of course, you know, I, I, I had to shift. I had to shift my expectation. What's important here? My, I, I could pick up the phone and, and call, say, I need you guys to cover for me. I'm going to be a couple hours late. Here's what's happening. Take care of it. I, I, it was a, you know, I can do that. Even if I even if I was a one-person business, I could have called my clients and said, and, and then to just be there with my mother, help her get dressed, and take her to the doctor. And that's important. I, what I loved about that was that you demonstrated that kind of shift mm-hmm. that we can do. We can go, we're so busy in our day, and we're mm-hmm. just going tunnel vision mm-hmm. through our day. Mm-hmm. And something, of course, is coming in from the side and knocking us off. And there's that choice point, and there's where we go down to, and we didn't even get into this, but but you can find (laughs) it in the book. Uh, It's called Ground Truth. Mm -hmm. We go to our fundamental, what is absolutely, what do I value here? Mm -hmm. And what you, you saw yourself in that moment I value my relationship with my mother and my commitment to support her in this moment mm-hmm. in her life. Mm-hmm. And it shifted everything. Mm-hmm. Everything else dissolves. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. Totally, totally. Yeah, and that, fir- that, that expression, <laughs> ground truth, it comes from the military in which, you know, that there's, to see there's a distinction between, you know, what the generals in the you know who are in Washington or in some office, what they think is happening, and the ground truth is what's happening on the ground. What are the people who are there actually saying? So it's it's kind of using that expression with when we drop down, what's 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 actually happening. There's so much more that we could go into. I mean, we just kind of opened the door of that one. So I'm going to encourage people to go to the book and and really research and, and look carefully at that because that's such a beautiful concept. I want to thank you so much, Mark, for being with us on New Dimensions. Thank you, Justine. I've been here with Mark Lesser, and he's the author of Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader, Lessons from Google and a Zen Monastery Kitchen. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, marklesser.net. And he spells his name M-A-R-C 
L-E-S-S-E-R, marklesser.net. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3678. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.